please turn your Bibles to Galatians 3. We're back in the, uh, the book of Galatians. Mike, you're going to need this later, I bet. Uh, Galatians 3. Um, so yeah, we're in Galatians, and uh, we've, we've been out of Galatians since uh, before Christmas, and so we're going to, uh, to come back to the, this epistle of Paul. As you turn there, just a reminder of some of the things Blake said. I uh, would encourage you to come out next Sunday evening for our Sunday evening service. We're going to be uh, continuing to talk about the changes to our, the proposed changes to our Constitution and bylaws. We'll kind of talk about the different changes that are in that, the categories of changes. Uh, most of them are, are pretty minor. And we'll also be talking about the changes, continuing to talk through the changes in the teaching statement and entertain any questions about those. And as Blake mentioned, next week we'll be talking about what we're going to, to uh, how we're going to articulate what we teach about eschatology, and that word eschatology just means the 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 study of the end, the study of, of last things, end times, and so uh, that's kind of a section of the teaching statement. Then, in terms of how we word things, we're changing things the most probably of, of any section in that section, uh, still affirming all the major things we affirmed before. But uh, changing how we articulate some of those, and I uh, would encourage you to come and, and be a part of that conversation next Sunday evening. Well, Galatians 3, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14, but to kind of help us get back into the book of Galatians, I'll go ahead and start in verse 1 of this chapter. And as a reminder, Paul has been kind of, begin, kind of been giving some autobiographical details in the first two chapters of Galatians as he talks about the source of the true gospel, and now he's going to be talking about the content of the true gospel and some threats to that true gospel. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Again, I'm beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And we come to verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You may be seated. May God encourage us, strengthen us, teach us through his word this morning. And Father, our our request would be today that we would know you more deeply as a result of of these truths. We pray that you would help our our hearts to to grasp the content of of this, our our minds to grasp the content, and then our hearts to be transformed as your spirit works through your word in our lives. We pray that we would trust in your son Jesus and him alone for salvation and for continued life. We pray this in his name. Amen. The past few weeks, I read several articles on a a documentary that came out in the fall. The documentary is entitled, American Gospel, Christ Alone. And I I haven't seen the documentary yet. It's a lot easier to read reviews about a documentary than to sit down and actually watch. I plan to eventually. But uh, based on the reviews that I've read on American Gospel, essentially, it's, it's a documentary about the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel movement. Basically, the teaching that if you have enough faith, you can receive God's blessings, and then it defines God's blessings very materialistically. And kind of the, the premise of this documentary is that the health and wealth gospel is kind of tailor-made for American Christianity, This idea that if you just believe what you want to believe about Jesus, then you can receive all these physical blessings. The the documentary makes the argument that that American Christianity is kind of tailor-made for that heresy. And based on the reviews that I've read, the documentary does all the things you'd expect a documentary about this, this movement to do. It talks about the deception. It talks about ruined lives. It talks about the opulent lifestyles, the lavish lifestyles that these health and wealth gospel preachers live and the misuse of finances. It talks about all of those things, but it does something else that I found very interesting and and encouraging. It also talks about the true gospel. So it, it, it contrasts this false gospel with the true gospel. In fact, here's what one person wrote. It said the documentary... Right, the documentary focuses on the positive, the true gospel. In offering this searing critique, which applies not merely to them out there, but to us, for many of us love money and ease more than we might be comfortable admitting. The documentary first establishes what the true gospel is. Listen to this. Good news centered in the finished work of Christ. Standing in the place of sinners like us, Jesus has absorbed the perfect wrath of the Father and made a way out of hell and into heaven. When we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior by God-given faith, we are instantly justified and counted righteous in God's sight, the very merit of Christ's now being our own. The prosperity gospel is wrong, but it's not wrong because it promises blessing. The prosperity gospel is wrong because of what it says the blessing is. It changes what or or who the blessing 
that God promises is. And I'm convinced if, if we rightly understood our greatest need, we would more easily understand God's greatest blessing. In fact, listen again how the reviewer says it. When we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, by God-given faith, we are instantly justified. We're counted righteous in God's sight, the very merit of Christ now being our own. That's the blessing of God. That's the blessing that was promised to Abraham. It's a blessing that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Christ bears God's wrath for us and provides us the means to God Access that we could not have if just left to our own ends. As we look at Galatians 3 this morning, here's kind of the central idea that I want us to to grasp together. All of God's blessings, all of God's blessings are ours in and only in Jesus Christ. All of God's blessings, the blessings that God has promised his people since Abraham, all of God's blessings are ours in and only in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do to kind of unpack this passage this morning is we're going to, to first of all, look at a problem that's presented here in Galatians 3, and then we're going to look at two solutions. Uh, The first solution is an inadequate solution that Paul discusses, and the second solution is Jesus, and, and spoiler alert, that's the good one, okay? That's the solution that we find is the true one, the true solution to this problem which God says that we all have. So let's first look at the problem. The problem occurs in verse 10. The problem is that we are all cursed, not blessed. We're all cursed, not blessed. Let's, let's spend a few minutes here kind of thinking about the context in which verses 10 through 14 occur. Let's, let's kind of remember, it's been a long time, so let's kind of think back and, and, and remember what's happening in Galatians. So here's Paul. Here's, here's Paul right here. I mean, I'm not Paul, but let's pretend this is Paul standing right here, and there are some opponents of Paul, some people who are, are, are preaching things that are different than what Paul is preaching to the people in Galatia. So let's, let's say there's, there's someone else over here, and let's give him the name uh, Joseph. It's a very Jewish name in this time. So there's, there's Paul and there's Joseph here. And let, let's think about what's taking place at, at this moment in, in Jewish history. If, if you're Joseph here, you're a person who's living in the first century A.D., and you have a, a certain per, perception. Let's say Joseph is a, is, was a Pharisee, and uh, he has a certain perception about himself and his relationship with God. Remember, as we read the, the gospel accounts, what do we see the, the Pharisees convinced of? Pharisees like, like Joseph here. The Pharisees are convinced that they are in right relationship with God. Remember the, the Pharisee in Luke 18? The, the Pharisee in Luke 18 is, is praying, and he, and he says to God, he says, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adult, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I, I tithe everything that I receive. And so this, this Pharisee Joseph is convinced that he is in right relationship with God. 
Remember in, in John chapter 8, we, we see that the Pharisees are convinced that they're the sons of Abraham. So God has made these promises to Abraham in the past that we've talked about as we went through the Pentateuch. And now the Pharisees are convinced that they're recipients of those promises that God made to Abraham. Remember in John chapter 8, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus and they say, look, we're, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we need to become free? And then they go on. In verse 39 of John chapter 8, they say, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the, th the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works that your father did. And they say, well, hold on. What, what father? What are you talking about? Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of liar, lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. The Jews, so Joseph, if he had been a Pharisee, would have been convinced that he was in right relationship with God. He would have said, look, I was, I'm, I'm Abraham's descendant, I'm a Jew, and I do the things that God told the Jews to do. There's no problem that I have with God, or rather, there's no problem God has with me. I'm, I'm part of his, his covenant. And Jesus tells Pharisees like Joseph here, no, 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 there's, there's a profound problem that you have. And in fact, as we see that the church is be, beginning in the book of Acts, and we see the apostles beginning to proclaim the gospel, what is the what is it that they do to proclaim that gospel? They, they go to synagogues, and, and what do they do? They convince people that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So, for example, in Acts chapter 6, the first martyr, Stephen, what does he do? He, he goes into the synagogue, and he tells the Jews that they are, are opposed to the things of God, and they get so mad at him, what do they do? They, they stone him. Paul, all throughout his ministry in the book of Acts, we see him going into to synagogues. So, for example, example in Acts chapter 9, he, he becomes a believer. His eyesight is restored, and he immediately, the first thing he does is he, it says in Acts chapter 9, it says that he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Acts 13, as he begins his missionary journeys, he, he proclaims the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews over and over again. And so as the early church begins, what are they trying to do? They're convincing the Jews, look, Jesus was the Messiah. So let's, let's imagine this. Let's imagine that, that Joseph here, at some point, hears this, this teaching about Jesus being the Messiah. And verbally, he affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he says, yes, I, I agree that that is true. Now, what has happened as we arrive in the book of Galatians. Paul has gone on a missionary journey throughout the area of Galatia and he's proclaimed Jesus as the Christ and he establishes these churches and then he leaves. And then people like Joseph, and so let's say Joseph is one of these guys, he comes into these regions and he begins to say, yeah, what Paul said was right about Jesus being the Messiah. That's, that's true, says Joseph. But, there's more to the story than just Jesus being the Messiah. You need to read the rest of this book of God 
and follow the other things in it as well. You need to become Jewish, says Paul's opponent. You need to get circumcised. You need to begin to follow the the dietary customs of the Jews. You need, if you want to really receive the blessings of Abraham that God promised his people, notice that the blessings of Abraham are for Jews. And so if you really want to receive those, yes, you need to believe in Jesus because he's the Messiah, but you also need to do all the other things that a Jewish person needs to do. Is to begin to do those things. And so what does Paul say to his opponent here? Well, that's where we get to in Galatians 3. He's he's aghast that the people that he's proclaimed the gospel to, that that have understood that you're saved by faith, he's he's shocked that they think now they need to obey the law. And so we've, we've gone through the first nine verses of Galatians 3, and now we come to verse 10. And Paul quotes the Old Testament to make his case that a person does not need to rely upon works of the law. In fact, look here at verse 10 with me. He says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, keep your finger there in Galatians 3, if you will, or digitally bookmark it or whatever you need to do, and and turn back to to Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And what Paul is telling his opponents here is that they have a profound problem. Now remember what's happening in Deuteronomy when we come to Deuteronomy 27. Moses has described this future ceremony that's going to take place when they go into the land. And they're going to stand, the people are going to be divided and they're going to be on two mountains. They're being on Mount Gerizim, half the people, and the other half of the people, the other six tribes are going to be on Mount Ebal. One mountain is a mountain of blessing, and one mountain is a mountain of cursing. So Gerizim is the, the mountain of blessing, Ebal is, is the mountain of cursing. So the people are divided, and the priests are to stand, in the, or the Levites, Levites are to stand in between the mountains, and they're to read the blessings and to read the curses. And so as they read the, the blessings, the people say amen, and as they read the curses, the people say amen. So here we are in Deuteronomy 27, and look at verse 15. It says, the Levites shall declare to all the men in the ears of Israel a loud voice. Verse 15, curse the man who makes a carved or metal or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman. And, and all the people say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. And all the people say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people say, Amen. And so there's this, this, this picture where the people stand on these two mountains and the, the Levites say, okay, here are all the reasons that a, the person should be blessed if, they're, if they honor their mother and father, if they, if, they're, if they don't steal, if they do the things that a person is supposed to do who's a covenant keeper of God. And all the people, as, as the Levites read those things, the people say, amen, 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 affirming that those things are the things for which a person should be blessed. And then the priests, the Levites, as they begin to, to say the things that a person should not do, the people say, amen, 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 affirming that those people should be cursed. Remember, as, as we 
talked about this passage some years ago, we kind of talked about some potential curses and potential blessings, and would we be willing to affirm curses upon a person who was dishonest with their employer, or a person who lied to a friend, would we be willing to say amen to a curse upon a person who failed to keep everything that God said to do? In fact, here's where we get down to verse 26. This is the, the verse that Paul quotes here. The people have, have said, cursed be all these different things, and then you come to verse 26 and it says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people say what? Amen. Remember we said as the people say amen to that, as they affirm God's curse upon a person who doesn't keep the law of God perfectly, what are they doing? They are affirming the validity of their own condemnation. They're affirming the justness of their own condemnation by God, their own deserving to be under God's wrath. They're proclaiming the justness of their own condemnation. It's a very sobering ceremony. In fact, there's an altar on the mountain of curses recognizing their their need for God to, to take their sin for them. What is Paul's point here? You can turn back to Galatians 3. What is Paul's point here in Galatians 3? He's bringing to mind, for those who are Jews, for those who say, okay, we need, we need the law, we need the law, we need the law, Paul's saying, okay, let's, let's remember the law. The, the people who were under the law proclaimed their own condemnation. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, and he's quoting there Deuteronomy 28, who's, that's part of this ceremony as well. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and and do them. And so this means who is cursed? Everyone. All people fall under the curse of God for failure to be completely obedient to all the things that God has told people they need to do. It's not just the Jew, it's everyone. Who's under the curse? Everyone who doesn't do all the things written in the book of the law, who isn't obedient to all of God's commands. Don't you hate it when someone starts telling you about their dream? I mean, they start telling you about a dream they had, and you're like, you know what, this this means something to you, but it doesn't really mean something to me. A couple nights ago, I had a dream, and... (laughs) In this dream, I was, I, was, I was in a musical, and uh, it was the night of the musical, and I, I showed up backstage, and I, you know, it kind of slipped my mind that I was in this musical, and I was, I was handed uh, the, the sheet music for this big number that I was about to be in, and I realized there were, there were two problems. Uh, one, there, was, there wasn't enough time for me to learn all the lyrics to the song that I was going to sing, and the, the other problem was uh, I can't read music. It didn't occur to me in my dream that I can't sing, which would have been a third problem, but you know. So in my dream, I'm, I'm looking at this, 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 uh, this text, realizing I, I'm in deep, deep problems here. A, a person here, Paul says, okay, you want to talk about the law, let's, let's look at the law. Opponents, Joseph, here, let's look at the law. Who's under the curse? The law says everyone's under the curse. 
we're all in trouble. All of us are in line of God's wrath. Now, I would encourage all of us to think very carefully about our relationship with God this morning. You aren't a Christian just because you've always been a Christian. You aren't a Christian, you aren't in right relationship with God simply because your parents were in right relationship with God or because you, you, you heard a good Bible story some years ago. You aren't a Christian because you go to a, a church that preaches the, the Bible. That those things don't make you a Christian. In fact, none of the things that you do can remove you from the danger in due to the curse of sin. Nothing is adequate. None of the things we do remove us from the danger that we're in due to the curse of sin. All of us have failed. All of us are under a curse in and of ourselves. That's Paul's problem. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Here's the first solution. Solution number one. Well, maybe I can pursue the blessing through works. God has promised, God promised the Jews this blessing in Abraham, and maybe I can get this, 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 I know I'm under a curse because I haven't done enough, I've failed. Maybe the answer is for me to do better. Maybe I need to, to be more obedient. Maybe that's the answer to this problem. And so Paul says to his opponents, Let's, let's go back again to what the law says. Let's go back to what God's word says. It's, it's evident. The law itself tells us that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he gives two, quotes two verses here. The first is from Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. person who's going to be in right relationship with God is going to live by faith. In the book of Habakkuk, it's describing the, the coming Babylonian invasion, and, and Habakkuk is talking about the terrible things that are going to take place. You come to Habakkuk 2.4, and he's talking about their oppressors. He says their, their souls are puffed up. They're not upright. He says, but the righteous person, the righteous one will live by faith. So in the, in the midst of coming calamity, the person who's going to be justified, the person that God is going to say that person is right with me, is not the person who works, but the person who believes and in their belief acts accordingly. And then he quotes the second verse here. He quotes Leviticus 18.5. He says, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Now, now what's Paul's point. There's two, two phrases that are contrasted, two verses that are contrasted. The righteous shall live by faith, and the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does the law shall live by the law. So, so here's, you say, well, what's going on here? I don't understand. So Paul would, would say this. He'd say, okay, if you want to be justified before God, you, you live by faith. And all Christians would say, yeah, what? Yes, we agree with that. But here's the deal. His opponent might have said that too. Yeah, yeah, the righteous shall live by faith. Absolutely. Paul, agree with you. Now, let's do the law so we can be, receive God's blessing. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Look, look, look what scripture says. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law says this, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you are going to rely upon the law to be justified by God, you got to do it perfectly. 
You must be perfectly obedient. And so, Joseph, your, 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 your idea that a person needs to be justified by faith and then continue to work in order to receive justification, it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent with what Scripture teaches us. If you want to pursue a works-based attempt to receive God's blessing, go for it, but you're going to have to be completely, 100% perfect. Now you say, well, Daniel, that's, that's great. Um, I'm not a Judaizer. You know, I'm not a person who says that people need to obey the Old Testament law to receive God's blessing, so I don't think this passage really applies to me. But let's, let's think about this. We've talked before about what I believe are some of the unique temptations that faces a church like ours. We are a church that I believe rightly wants to go to God's word and we want to be obedient to it. And legalism and its, its cousin perfectionism flourish in church cultures like ours. Legalism and its cousin perfectionism flourish in church cultures like ours. Why is that? Because our hearts can twist our right desire for obedience into sinful desire to, to win God's favor by our own efforts. A heart that says, okay, I want to be obedient to God, I want to be obedient to God. In our, in our sin nature, we can, we can so easily twist that desire to be obedient into a desire to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to win God's favor somehow by my own efforts or by my own strength. We're like the, the, the kid who says, um, you know, mom and dad, I want to go to Disney World. And, and our, 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 the parent says, well, you know, that's, that's very expensive. And the child says, yeah, I know. I know I, I need you guys to help me get there. But, 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 but I've got $3. And I'm going to, I know it's you guys taking me to Disney World, but I'm, I'm going to help out the family here, right? That's, that's how we are in our relationship with God. Yeah, yeah, I know faith alone. I, I get that. It's, it's all Jesus. But if I really want God to, to, to bless me, if I want to receive the blessings, I've, I've need to, I need to do these things. I need to pursue perfectionism. I need, in my own effort, I need to somehow become the type of person that deserves the blessings that God will give. And this is something I have struggled with my entire life. I think I've mentioned this years ago, and I, I thought I was never going to mention this story again until my children were out of the, the home. Uh, my kids are kind of reaching this age where I don't know if I want this story out there. Um, when I was 17 years old, I was, I was definitely struggling with, with perfectionism, with, with legalism. My, my parents saw this in my, in my life. And there was an evening where I was at church, and I was pulling out of a parking spot in, in church with my 1976 Pontiac Ventura, huge boat of a car, and I, I backed into a Lexus. And back in the 90s, Lexuses were really expensive cars. Um, and there was just this, this, this terrible cr crunching sound. And uh, I went home, and my parents were talking about it, and a couple of days went by, and my parents talked to the owner of this car, and, and they, my parents sat me down one evening and said, look, um, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, there, there's, there's nothing you can really do. We've talked to the insurance company. This is what it would do to our premiums and our, our rates, and this is what it would do to you over the next five years, and this is what the just paying for. You, you, there's nothing really you can do here. So we've talked about it, and, and we are just going to 
teach you grace, and we're going to take care of this, and there's nothing you need to pay back. There's nothing you can contribute. This is, this is all of grace. And I was like, this is a lesson I'm really excited about learning. Um, you know, it's grace. Some of us need that. Some of us need to, to learn about the message of grace. The message of grace isn't, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to give you forgiveness. But now, now that I've given you forgiveness, you better act like it to make sure I didn't make a mistake here. Now you start deserving it by how you act. That's, that's not how grace works. You say, are you saying we shouldn't be obedient? Are you saying that more obedience is a, is a bad answer? No, more obedience is a great answer to a different question. If the question is, how should I respond to God's love for me because I want to show my love for him, what should I do? I'll be more obedient. But if the question is, how should I earn God's blessing, the answer is not more obedience. There's an article uh, by Rick Thomas, uh, several articles he wrote on perfectionism. I think I'm getting the name right. But he, he says this, he says, the bottom line for the wannabe perfectionist is his unwillingness to trust God. His striving, for, for, his striving for perfection is a loud commentary on how he thinks about God. Rather than finding acceptance and rest through the finished work of Christ, he continues to strive for the perfection that only Christ can achieve. You hear that? He continues to strive for the perfection that only Christ can achieve. This tension puts him in a tug of war with God. It is though the Lord is saying, I fully forgive you for all your past, present, and future sins. I give you my son's perfect righteousness. I do not see you as a sinner, but as a righteous child. Please enter my, into my rest. But the perfectionist says, I affirm in my mind what you're saying, but it is still important that others think a certain way about me. And to satisfy this craving, I have to control certain situations. I, I cannot let them know the real me, which is why I try to perpetuate a slightly altered image both to others, to ourselves, and even to God. This solution of pursuing God's blessing through works is a path we must repent of. What does repentance look like here? I think it means recognizing that God's standard is higher than we can comprehend. When he says, the, 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 as he quotes here, and says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. When he says the, the, the one who does them works shall, shall live by them, he's showing us the absolute standard of perfection that God has in terms of what holiness is. It's, it's complete, unwavering devotion to God and his glory. And repenting of perfectionism and of legalism begins with us recognizing, okay, this is what the holiness of God looks like. It's the awesomeness of God's standard, the incomprehensible nature of his glory. And then repentance means I, I worship him as I think about his perfection, and then I begin to repent of those sins of perfectionism. What are those? Again, these are from various people, uh, Rick Thomas and others. The sin of sins that, that, are the, that kind of find their root in perfectionism, some are, are partial obedience, a perfectionist struggles with partial obedience. I, I say, okay, I, I want to be, be perfect, and so 
I define perfection in a way that I can, I can meet. And so I'm not talking about the, the totality of God's commandments. I'm looking at a couple things that I do well. I'm saying, okay, this is what obedience looks like. And so it's, it's partial obedience. It's not the fullness of what God calls me to do. There's intellectual dishonesty in the mind of a perfectionist. Deceiving our, ourselves about our failures. And we're aware of the faults of others, perhaps, but not our own. The perfectionist struggles with unconfessed sin. We redefine what sin is, and, and we have wrong thoughts about God and his perfection, so it, it causes us not to confess our sin rightly. Why were the Pharisees so successful? Because they had explained away their, their struggles, the things they did sin with, as, as a not sin, and focused simply on the things that they could do, and so there was unconfessed sin. The perfectionist struggles with relational fallout as, as others fail to meet their expectations. He or she struggles with missed opportunities. In our relationships with others, a person who is a perfectionist refuses to acknowledge their sin and, and wants to be seen as, as good by God and others. And so they miss opportunities to, to come alongside other believers and say, look, this is, this is how I need your prayer. This is how the gospel's right now working in, in my life. Please continue to pray for me that God's gospel would, would be effective for me in these areas. There are missed opportunities for proclaiming God's grace and his glory in the heart of a perfectionist. The perfectionist fights with God and their pride. There's a gospel disconnect. A person who's growing in perfectionism is not growing in sanctification. Those two things are radically different. A person who's growing in perfectionism has become more, more and more devoted to their glory and not God's. May God in his grace convince us that that is not a path that leads to his blessing. You say, okay, uh, but even, even as we talk about perfectionism, and our, our temptation is to say this, okay, I'm going to resolve to be less perfectionistic. No one is going to be less perfectionistic than I am. What's the answer? How do we receive God's blessing? There's a problem. The problem is we're under God's curse, not his blessing in and of ourselves. The, the solution that we're tempted to try is, is, is this legalistic, perfectionistic attempt to earn God's grace and his blessing. What's the solution that we see presented here by Paul? Number two, solution two, we receive the blessing through faith. We receive God's blessing through faith. This is something we're going to continue to unpack in the coming weeks. But, but listen to what Paul says here. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, remember when we went through Deuteronomy 27 and 28, what did we see? We, we saw that what that passage was teaching the Israelites and what it's teaching us is that we need someone who can earn the blessing for us and take the curse for us. We need someone who can take that curse upon themselves and earn the blessing that we can then receive. And that's what Paul says Jesus has done. Christ redeems us. It says he redeemed us from the curse of the law. So there's this, this curse on the law for everyone who can't perfectly obey all the things that God has said that we need to do. And so what happens? Christ becomes a curse for us. And again, Paul quotes 
the law, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, describes the execution of a criminal. Deuteronomy 21 says this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's, he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. So Jesus, as he, as he takes this, this, this penalty that only a criminal deserved, what, is, what was he doing? He was taking upon himself the curse that those who were disobedient to the law deserved. Why did he do that? Verse 14 This is what Paul is saying to his opponents. This is what Paul is saying to those of us who would be tempted to pursue God's blessing on our own efforts and not through his grace. He says, Christ did this. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, not through your works, not through your efforts, not through the law, so that in Christ Jesus, this blessing, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we, and I think that we there is referring to both Jews and Gentiles, might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there's this blessing that we've been talking about since we were in the Pentateuch, this this blessing that God promises Abraham. And, And it's a blessing that a person cannot earn it's a blessing, though, that is found in and only in Jesus Christ, a blessing that, that as, as Paul begins to unpack the story of the gospel, we see has more and more ramifications. There's, there's more and more blessing that's provided through what God promised to Abraham than we could ever have comprehended before Christ came. Now, in, in Jesus Christ, the, the, the fullness of the gospel is revealed, and, and the people who receive the gospel understand that God's promise to his people is beyond what they could imagine. All of us receive the promised spirit through faith. We're going to continue to talk about what that means. Now, what does that mean? It means that as Paul and his opponent here are, are talking about the gospel, Paul is saying this, okay, here's what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ has taken the curse for us, in its fullness, there's, there's, no, there's no curse left to deal with, and he's provided the fullness of the blessing. He's earned the blessing in all of its fullness. There's no aspect of the blessing of God that a person can receive that hasn't already been earned. Do you understand that? There's no aspect of God's blessing that's left to be earned that Jesus Christ hasn't already earned. There's no more work left to do. And, and so that's the question for the opponent. Okay, um, what work is left? Seriously, what work is left? What are you going to accomplish by following the law? You've received the fullness of, of God's blessing. Now, of course, we, we're going to talk more about this. There's, there's reward. There's the fullness of being able to experience God's blessing. But in terms of, of, of achieving eternal life, of God's justification, and of dealing with the curse, there's nothing left to do. The fullness of Christ has provided all that we need. What are your needs this morning? Your needs this morning aren't more material things. You don't need more stuff. We talked about stuff just last week. We talked about stuff last week. It's all useless. It's all going away. The physical stuff, it's it's all gone. You don't need more worthless things. What do you need? 
Christianity, we see there's this, this worldview in which we understand that, that the American dream, this, this idea that we accumulate more and more stuff is not, is not the message of the gospel. If you believe that, that your goal in life is to accumulate more and more stuff of the American dream, you've misunderstood the beauty of the gospel. What we see here is that all of God's blessings are ours, and they're ours in and only in Jesus Christ. That we receive the blessings that we receive by placing our faith and our trust completely in him. And my encouragement to you this morning would be to trust in Jesus. To turn away from perfectionism, from legalism, from whatever other isms that you're following, and to turn your confidence completely and fully into the person Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in your grace, we would ask that you would give us the ability to turn from sin. We pray that you would, by your grace, reveal sin in our heart and that you would cause us to, to rightly reject it as we think and contemplate upon the beauty of your son Jesus. We pray that we would trust in him, that we live lives of obedience, not seeking your favor, but expressing our, our love and growing in our ability to comprehend the riches of the inheritance that you have already provided for us in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.